Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode came out a little bit later than expected because I've been adhering very strictly to a new schedule, trying to get things done in a certain way to help me long term, but it's resulted in a few things falling back, but just by a couple days in this case. So this episode covers the film High Rise. It's also part of my Left of the Movies podcast, where I'm talking about films from a particularly political perspective. Uh, in this case, this is a film I watched and uh, recorded this review of a few years ago. So it's interesting to revisit now in audio form, listening to my commentary on it. It makes me actually kind of want to see the film again, although, as you'll see, I had a lot of issues with it. So uh, I kind of discussed the aesthetic aspects, what I thought worked or didn't work about the, the storytelling and the filmmaking uh, in the early part of this, and then I shift more toward the political questions. I found this film sort of slippery to get a hold of in that way. Uh, I hadn't read the source material, so talk about that a little bit and what um, you, you know what the person who uh, recommended this film to me, uh, whose name is Jeff, uh, he kind of chimes in at one point. I, I'm going to read some feedback at the end of this podcast talking about his impression as. Um, you know, somebody from the British Isles, what they, what he thinks about the film's commentary on society of that time. It takes place in the 70s, and I'll let you hear that discussion as it unfolds. I think it's pretty interesting, and I would love to hear from other listeners and keep this conversation ongoing, because I feel like uh, with this film, particularly if you lived in the UK, particularly if you lived through the 70s and you remember it, uh, you may have an interesting perspective on uh, what it's depicting in sort of a sideways satirical way so we'll talk about more than that more about that when we get into the film but I want to cover what I've been doing elsewhere and this has been a busy couple weeks for me so first off my Mirrors of Kane video part of a Citizen Kane video essay series where I analyzed that film started in 2016 put it on pause and this was the first time I came back to it since then I do a short video on the figure of Thatcher the uh, older benefactor figure who is uh, butts heads with uh, Charles Foster Kane at several points as a child, as a young man, as an older man, and going through that and also the differences between William Randolph Hearst and uh, the character that he's based on, the, the main character of Citizen Kane. So that was really fun to do. I also put up a video on, and that by the way is on YouTube and Vimeo with also a, a cross post on my site. I'll link all this stuff below. I also kept putting up uh, pieces of my longer Twin Peaks video on season three, uh, the Journey Through Twin Peaks chapter I did last summer. I wanted to put up little sections on each of the episodes in time with the anniversaries this year because it's the fourth anniversary this summer of uh, this, you know, the season that came out on Showtime. So uh, the latest one I put up was Twin Peaks from Cosmos to Carpet video essay on season three, parts three and four. That's on YouTube. My Mad Men viewing diary continued of season four with episodes 10 and 11, Hands and Knees and Chinese Wall. And for dollar a month patrons on my uh, Patreon, I shared the podcast uh, Lost in Twin Peaks number 22, which is on <clears throat> episode 21, a.k.a. Double Play. That's one directed by uh, guest director Yuli Edel from Germany. And then episode 79 of my uh, main podcast for the patrons covers Twin Peaks Cinema Angel Face, plus reading my Citizen Kane essay, new schedule for 2021 to 22, Twin Peaks Reflections on Evelyn, Jacoby, Wyndham's Cabin, Philadelphia FBI Office, Evelyn Marsh Saga, Lost Highway, and more. And I also included a bonus of my Citizen Kane archive reading 
mentions of that film on my site and also a public bonus, which anybody can check out, even if you're not a patron yet. And that's called Reading Francois Truffaut on Citizen Kane. It's just me reading an essay I really liked by the great French film director on Citizen Kane. So lots of Citizen Kane stuff at this time. It was the 80th anniversary of that film this month. And then finally, I also made a guest appearance on the podcast Twin Peaks Unwrapped, which is concluding this month. They had an episode called Ultimate Lynch Madness with other guests, Maya McBriar, John Thorne, and Josh Mitten, where we all tried to rank our best Lynch work based on previous times that we'd gotten together and talked about the best episodes of season one, two, and three in the best Lynch film. So it's all somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but we had a lot of fun doing it. So you can check out and see what, what wins that. Okay, so here is High Rise. Stay tuned for the feedback after, and also stay tuned for some further thoughts now that uh, when I recorded these original thoughts, it was 2018. Now that we're a few years down the line in terms of uh, what's happened politically, not just in the U.S., but also the U.K., where this takes place. I think that's significant. So there'll be some issues to discuss there. I always like when revisiting my coverage of older um, uh, films that I covered a while ago to kind of touch base again, as I did with Sorry to Bother You, talking about the Amazon uh, labor actions recently and with the films that I discussed at the beginning of twenty. 20, I think, actually, Parasite, Joker, The Irishman, and uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and revisiting them at the end of 2020, because so much stuff had happened just talking about talking about them from that perspective. So it's always something I like to do, so stay tuned for that as well. Here is my take on High Rise. I heard you out there. <clears throat> Who are you talking to? No one. Just the building. system is a necessary but not a sufficient condition. There is only one economic system in the world, and that is capitalism. The difference lies in whether the capital is in the hands of the state or whether the greater part of it is in the hands of people outside of state control. Where there is state capitalism, there will never be political freedom. High Rise, as you would suspect, is a film about a housing development somewhere in the UK. It's shot in Belfast, I'm not sure if it takes place there, and I'm not sure it matters exactly where it takes place, because this is a very allegorical film, it's not really meant to have that geographical specificity. The situation is compelling, I think it's uh, probably what I was most intrigued by with the film, is this idea of this building as a microcosm for society. Geographical specificity doesn't matter for the film, but the geography of the building is kind of important, and they do spend a lot of time building that up. Uh, in, in a sense, it's almost reminiscent of The Shining, where you have this hotel, these characters are kind of trapped in, and you get to know each space within that, and then it becomes this claustrophobic environment that almost has a life of its own. And that's very true of this film as well. The tone is very arched. This is obviously a satire, and everybody in the film is kind of cartoonish and over-the-top from the very beginning. I thought really too much so. Um, there was not a moment where you kind of get your footing in some kind of real world and then that's subverted. From the very beginning, it's all unreal or irreal. And the style of the film, I found 
pretty off-putting. It's very stylized, very mannered film, the way it's cut, the way the narration tracks and the music is used. It's It felt actually almost like a film from 10 years earlier. This came out in 2015, but it felt like a very Zeros film where you had that arch stylized approach to filmmaking coupled with this heartlessness in a way. This is a very cold film. It's It comes from a place of deep alienation within the beast. It feels more nihilistic than anything to me. It didn't feel like it was putting forward some alternative to the dystopia that it presents, but just allowing us to sink further and further into this dystopia with a sense of inevitability, throwing your hands in the air and just saying, well, let's enjoy the chaos because there's nothing else there. So personally, I didn't like this film. (laughs) It's sort of a mixture of things. I think there's some personal distaste there. I have an aversion to these satirical films, which are as cold, as smug as whatever they're supposed to be satirizing. Another example of this would be American Psycho, which I know is just a beloved movie. So that's heretical for me to say, I guess, but that just left me with the same sort of acidic feeling that I, this sort of distaste. So that's the personal aspect. That's fine. That's subjective. Everybody's got their own take. But I also wasn't really sure that this film was handled uh, as, as well as it could have been in a lot of cases. I already mentioned the fact that we start with this off-putting, slick, cartoonish approach to reality And that just put me off from the get-go. I actually liked the film more as it went along. I thought the more chaotic it became, the stronger. It needed that sense of of freedom, although I'm not sure it ever went as far as it could or maybe should have in that direction. Uh, It seems like there was probably some influence of Peter Watkins here. He's the filmmaker who made The War Game in the 60s and La Commune in uh, around 2000. And La Commune in particular is a film that reminded me of this where you have the crew and cast recreating the commune of Paris of 1871 and adding some modern elements to it as well. Like, for example, there's a news camera crew that's walking around. The whole film is shot like a documentary of this event and it's shot on a soundstage. So there's these different layers of artificiality and authenticity that are kind of fascinating to behold. And that can be a frustrating film too, but ultimately I thought it was richer and more provocative than this film was. In this film, there's such an airtight environment created that we're within that uh, it, it just becomes kind of suffocating. I sound like I'm complimenting the film because obviously it wants to be claustrophobic. I have an issue with satires that are just within the beast and don't have a sense of anything outside of it. They have nothing constructive to say. They're just ripping apart what's there. As, as a general rule, you know, it depends on the work and how much it captures me. It's interesting to hear that Nicholas Rogue was going to direct this film at one point, way back in the 70s, when they were going to adapt the J.G. Ballard book that it's based on. And I could definitely see him handling this material. It's an open question what I would think of it if he did. Rogue, sometimes I find off-putting as a director, although I respect his style a lot. So, I mean, I may have said some of the same issues with that, but I think I would have come away more satisfied by the style. There was just something about this film directed by Ben Wheatley. It felt alternately at times too controlled when we could have used more of a sense of a, of a kind of humanity beneath it. And at other times it felt a little too all over the place where there were these techniques and gestures thrown at the wall and uh, they didn't really stick. Like the cross, the constant cross-cutting between different events felt like it was trying to say something and it, it just didn't communicate anything really to me other than these things are happening at the same time. Let's try and build up a rhythm with them. And it, it felt a little desperate as a maneuver to me. As far as the satire itself goes, 
uh, at, at that w- that came across as somewhat muddled as well. Sometimes it was very on the nose. You have this elite at the top of the building and the lower classes below. And, you know, they're trying to, they're just explicitly saying we need to push them out or we need to control them or they want to lobotomize one of the guys. And it's like, okay, that's straightforward. I'm not even sure that's satire. That's just presenting the situation at, at face value. There's no real metaphor going on or anything like that. So there's nothing clever about that approach. But then at other times, I think what annoyed me more was when it, the the satire didn't really seem to have much of an object. There wasn't really a sense of an alternative that was being contrasted with this at all. I'm not sure that's the duty of the film, but I think when it's presenting this disaster, it may be incumbent upon it to at least hint at another path. The film closes with a Margaret Thatcher quote, followed by a fall song, which was great, especially as Mark E. Smith died recently. And that almost made me wish I liked the film more than it did. It had this strong ending with the camera drifting away in the sky, away from the kid on top of the building. But the Thatcher quote is a bit perplexing to me. Uh, I played it at the beginning as a clip to lead into this. The Jeremy Irons character, who's the architect, he, he runs the building, he lives up on the top floor. His wife has a private Arcadia up there and he's trying to design and manage this whole building and it's just falling to pieces. He may not officially be a representative of the state. But in terms of the allegory, he's a figure who corresponds with this extreme libertarian, right-wing libertarian view of the social welfare state as trying to create this situation where um, everybody can get what they need, but the whole thing's falling apart. There's a certain sense in which the free-spirited energy of the 60s went into the service in some ways of the Reaganite-Thatcherite agenda. And I'm not sure how this uh, counters that. And part of the problem with that is because it doesn't present any even inkling of another route. It just seems like, well, this is the inevitable path of of this environment, this situation. Now, on the other hand, obviously, the building that Jeremy Irons designs has the social structures of capitalism baked into it. You know, there's a, there's a sense that that's the problem here. But the Thatcher quote doesn't say there's capitalism and there's anti-capitalism. It says there's only one system and that is capitalism. And so if you try to create state capitalism, you're still furthering it just in a worse way. And the film just seems to kind of go along with that in a way. I don't see any carving out of a space for alternatives. The one character who's called the sanest man in the building, and in the context of this film, it might be true because everybody's so ridiculous, but he's a violent rapist who is obnoxious to everybody and kind of uh, a bully and forces his way around. So if that's all they're suggesting as an alternative, it seems like impotent gesture at best and something as destructive in its own right almost like if he could just be in the top himself, he'd just be doing the same things Jeremy Irons does. Here's the word I haven't used yet. I've talked, I've said nihilist. I've said, you know, I've talked about the satire. I've talked about cold and alienated. This feels like a very cynical film and not cynical in the sense of correctly seeing through the bull and describing the negative conditions as they are, but in the sense of dismissing any possibility of any positive improvement. So that was my frustration with this. This is based on a J.G. Ballard novel, which honestly surprised me when I saw it in the credits. It felt a little bit uh, sloppy to me, the, the story as presented in the film. He's an acclaimed author. I haven't read his work, but certainly I, uh, you know, from the, the pedigree of the book, it seems like this is a 
widely uh, acclaimed book. And I, to be fair, too, this was a fairly acclaimed adaptation from what I can see. So I'm kind of in the minority in not really caring for it, or at least, um, well, kind of. <laughs> the audience reviews are less kind. I think Netflix had a bunch of like one-star reviews and stuff. So, you know, I guess you could put me with the rabble on this one. I haven't read Ballard's book, and I'd be interested to see where it differs. Does the language convey a tighter vessel for this journey than I felt the filmmaking does? Then again, I, I could read it and not care for that as well, because some of this seems endemic to the material and to the approach. But it's also sometimes easier to present an allegory uh, as literary text than as a cinematic one. But it's interesting that the Ballard book came out in the early 70s before Thatcher was prime minister. So that means this is something that Ben Wheatley and his wife Amy Jump, who wrote the screenplay and I think edited the film together, that's something that they added to the material. They felt that it corresponded to what Ballard was trying to say. As I said, I did feel the film got stronger as it went along. It seemed more in its element when it was just jumping around. Another filmmaker who comes to mind here is Derek Jarman with his film Jubilee, which is also an allegorical take on, on current Britain. I think the film is probably worth seeing and engaging with. The book maybe more so, I don't know. I, I Like I said, I'd love to hear from people who've, who've read it and what they thought of the film. I definitely didn't wasn't taken with this film in any sense. Uh, it gave me something to think about afterwards, and I appreciate that. But as a, as a viewing experience, um, I found it more frustrating than anything else. For feedback this week, I had a comment on the site that I thought was interesting from Jeff. So I'm going to read some of that. Jeff says, I apologize for the good chuckle I had listening to your antipathy towards High Rise. Ben Wheatley is what we in the UK would call a Marmite filmmaker. People tend to either love him or hate him, with little middle ground. My own opinion of his work has yet to coalesce, although I did enjoy a field in England, as it ticked a few boxes with regard to my personal interests in British history, countryside, and folklore. His work on Doctor Who was also pretty good. Your main criticism of the film reminded me of Aldous Huxley's regrets about his own work in Brave New World, the lack of any third way or happy exit from the dystopia he had created. In context, I think it makes sense here. The old labor socialism of the 70s was fraying at the edges, and a lot of people grew sick of the power of unions, etc., so they turned to a radical alternative in Thatcherism, which of course, in the end, proved to be far worse, although naturally opinions still vary on this. It's hard to look back at that period in British history without a feeling of cynicism. Of course, as you rightly point out, Ballard was writing before all that, so this was a Wheatley Jump edition. One other thought. I don't know how obvious British social class cues are to foreigners, but this utopian tower block clearly isn't home to any members of the working class. Even the upper class isn't really present. It's upper middle at the top and lower middle at the bottom. The whole piece seems like a criticism of that class and its flaky ideals, rather than of humanity or British society as a whole. Today's well-off liberal centrists take note. So that was a great comment, and I responded to it on the site. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I almost called it a luxury high-rise in the commentary, but then was like, no, it's more stratified than that. But you're right. Even the lower floors are relatively well-off. 
I guess maybe the cashiers in the basement grocery store are at the bottom, but we don't see a ton of them, save for the French-speaking moments. Wonder what that's meant to suggest. Your description of Field of England is intriguing. And I talk about some other films that we don't need to get into here, and I say, I would love to read an extended analysis by a Brit about the social-political aspects of both the film and the novel High Rise. It does seem like there was a long, extended period really from the end of the Cold War, beginning of the Cold, or the end of the World War II, beginning of the Cold War, to maybe the financial crisis of 2008, with the late 60s, early 70s as a notable radical exception, albeit with its own caveats, where many cultural rebels recoiled from a materialist left and flirted with an individualist-speaking right, usually flirting from an outside ideology or, quote, apolitical distance. Postmodernism represented the apogee of this trend, Although a case could also be made, of course, that postmodernism was more politically transgressive than modernism. Even there, though, the nature of that transgression was often willfully marginal. High Rise feels like it may be cut from this cloth. I think this historic getting lost in the weeds of a kind of decentered, amorphous, what do you got rebellion turned out to be a massively myopic miscalculation, or a misinstinct, since I'm not sure how calculated it really was. It backfired badly, neutering a left that could function in the real world and turning those who stuck with the left into a kind of performative cult, and stranding a lot of otherwise subversive artists in a kind of non-ideological no-man's land, and leading some directly to the right. See the whole 4chan culture where what started out as in it for the lulls edgelordism fell right into the open arms of explicitly repressive, xenophobic, and genocidal politics. I'm going to read one more piece of feedback from Jeff, or part of it anyways, his response to my response. So Jeff mentions, The only bit of ballad I've read is his sci-fi novel, The Drowned World, which more or less fits the mold of what you're saying. Hero who isolates himself from society and is in high-rise, ends up devolving into a more atavistic state. A field in England is quite something a black-and-white psychedelic film set in a field in the 17th century. Has a very abstract, cryptic narrative and plenty of what a friend of mine dismissively describes as film school gimmicks, weird tableau vivants in particular. That's that's pretty intriguing to me. I, I think uh, in some ways I'm almost more intrigued by that than by High Rise. As much as I didn't really care for High Rise, I did find it interesting, so to speak. So... This now brings us to 2020, and at this point, or 2021 rather at this point, but uh, 2020 was when the U.S. election was uh, was held, and in the primary, Bernie Sanders ran as a left candidate promising exactly what I felt this film said couldn't be done, and it didn't get done. The voters turned toward Biden, and I think there's so many reasons for that. There's so many things that went into that decision. There's a generational, a huge generational aspect to it, which interestingly Wheatley himself has gone on to document within uh, the UK. Uh, He talks out, though it's a couple interviews that I'll link below where he touches on some more political stuff. It, It seems like he has a kind of vaguely, he's not super explicit about it, but kind of a vaguely left social critique with maybe some skepticism about uh, big social experiments, although the way he says that it, it could be about the government or it could be more of a, even a left critique of, of of that type of corporate activity in a way too. So it's not totally clear. Uh, he seems kind of leftish, I'd say. Um, uh, J.G. Ballard was apparently quite apolitical and ref- 
did not want to be pinned down and had a great skepticism of these kind of projects of the left um, up to that time when he wrote this in the 70s. So it seems like I did kind of pick up on that in the film fairly accurately. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, the the most notable thing that's happened since I talked about this film is in, in relation to what it depicts is the uh, UK election in 2019, where the left represented by Jeremy Corbyn as an explicit rejection of this kind of ethos of the, certainly the Thatcher quote at the end of the film, which again, I don't think Wheatley was endorsing, but does kind of in some ways seem to describe the ethos of this film. And uh, Corbyn was just flatly, roundly rejected by the voters. Now he had more success in 2017 where he, where the Labour Party was not as focused on the idea of overturning Brexit. Obviously that had a lot to do with it. British listeners would know more than I do on the ground about what the dynamics were there, but there's a certainly a disheartening aspect to it. Like this sort of message that Thatcher hammered into everyone has become so ingrained that uh, now, even though, you know, the right uh, is less prone to that kind of eighties neoliberalism, they're more prone to, to, maybe tease the idea of, of more social spending and so forth. Um, there's still this deference to a kind of right-wing hostility towards socialism and the, the idea of a, of a state where everyone is, a, is uh, everyone has equal power in a sense. So, of course, that's not what this film is satirizing. And again, I'd, I'd ask you to look at those uh, interviews below where I think you get a little more clarification about some of the things that, that Wheatley felt he was going for in there. Some interesting conversations about architecture, too. But uh, it's it's also funny that there's so much in the news right now about housing between uh, the eviction crisis where the moratorium is going to expire and uh, Congress has not done a great job targeting aid to help people who are going to possibly be suffering from that. And then also on the higher end, people trying to buy these, you know, people scooping or corporations often scooping up these houses for ridiculous prices, you know, sometimes $100,000 over the asking price. And uh, this this kind of bubble that's emerging there, there's crises with possibly with commercial real estate. So that was something I thought initially, uh, maybe I would touch on here, but I do have to say this film, the housing in this film is so uh, metaphorical that I'm not sure that much of an analogy can be drawn between that and the present. So this ended up being a little longer episode than usual. There was so much around this film to discuss besides the film itself. And again, I would hope it kicks off something more if you have any thoughts on this um, that, that you write in. Now, finally, I wanted to end with this little comment. It's very tangential, but uh, maybe it can be some fuel for thought of its own. This was something I said in response to Jeff's comment about Aldous Huxley and Brave New World. It started me thinking on a little tangent about him and an author who I would love to somehow bring into uh, this or other podcasts at some point. I'm not sure how yet, but uh, maybe there's something out there to discuss. So I'll end with this bit of feedback that again is a little off to the side from the uh, Left of the Movies project, but maybe a seed for something else. But I also want to mention here something that I didn't respond to at at the time because um, I kind of went off in a different direction with my with my commentary. But uh, Jeff mentions that Aldous Huxley regretted that Brave New World lacked any kind of happy exit from the dystopia. I think that's interesting because to me, the book actually does point towards Huxley's later mystical tendencies 
um, and not quite as overtly as he would later do with like the perennial philosophy or um, the uh, doors of perception or heaven and hell. But you can see the seeds of that there, I think, uh, to my eyes anyways. It was interesting because I read that book uh, about uh, 14 years ago, I guess now. I enjoyed it, but I remember thinking, oh, this is interesting because I kind of associate Aldous Huxley in my head with, uh, you know, I know he was sort of an advocate of LSD and psychedelics and stuff. And that led me down the path to his more spiritual writings. And man, that you know, that's an author that just really connected to me on a personal level. I, I loved the stuff he wrote. And I, I like reading his early work because you can see you can see like the the formation of it there beneath the surface. He's this sort of very secular, high-minded social critic, but yet you can see what would become the author of these later books. And uh, he's specifically thinking of not just Brave New World, but the story Chrome Yellow, which is this uh, on-a-surface social satire of the 20s, typical of its genre, and yet it has these sort of weird idiosyncratic elements. And finally, here's a taste of what we will be discussing in two weeks, back on the regular schedule, and I can promise you that because I'm recording this episode, or putting this episode together because it's also assembled from an old uh, piece, uh, tonight, right after I finish putting this one together. So you won't, you know, th there will be no last minute when it comes to that. So here is a clip from that. Maybe you can figure out what it is from listening. If not, hang tight. You'll find out soon. sure did its work. They didn't score any dope that day, but somehow, suddenly, it didn't matter. 